to start us off tonight, I want to read a story to y'all. Some of y'all, I mean, y'all were probably younger when this happened. 2016. How old are y'all in 2016? Like 12. Okay, so you probably didn't uh, really hear about this when it happened. But back in 2016, uh, there was actually the largest terrorist attack in the United States since September 11th. And it happened in Orlando, Florida, in a nightclub uh, called Bulge. It was a gay nightclub, and there was a man who came in and killed, uh, I want to say, I'm pulling up my notes right here. Uh, here we go. Killed 49 people and wounded 53 more in a mass shooting. It was, again, the most uh, fatal terrorist attack in the United States since September 11th. Uh, they, this man named Omar Mateen shot and killed all these people. And in the aftermath of that, there was an article that came out about a year later, somebody reflecting back on this attack. It was from a professor named Wesley Hill, who was an assistant professor of biblical studies at Trinity School for Ministries. And I wanted you to hear what he says, because this is going to help us think about this idea of radical hospitality. So in light of this mass murder at this gay bar in Orlando, here's what he has to say. In the days following the Orlando shooting, many mourners observed that clubs like Pulse have been among the precious few places for the LGBTQ community throughout its history to find respite from ridicule and worse. Craig Rodwell, founder of the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop in New York, spoke for many when he said, years ago, bars have always been our only place, our haven in a sense. Or as another man put it on Twitter, a nightclub is like, listen to this, a sanctuary when a sanctuary hasn't welcomed you. Some of the clubs have even borne that name, sanctuary, in neon, like a lighthouse, pointing the way to safety. Clubs like Pulse have never been my scene, but I have an inkling of what they may mean to my tribe. And the author writes, as a gay man myself, albeit a celibate one, owing to my Christian ethical convictions, I know my own feeling of relief and calm when I'm with my gay friends. Now I want you to hear these words as we're thinking about radical hospitality. This is a man who identifies as Christian, who's teaching at a uh, Christian university as a biblical professor, identifies as a gay man, but uh, keeps himself celibate. But he recognizes two things. First, he recognizes something that's happening outside and around him and the people that he would closely in some ways identify with, that they find a club, a bar like this to be a safe haven, a place where they can feel some sort of rest and relief from the world around them. Like what we would feel when we come to church. He even says, when a sanctuary, meaning a church, and the people there haven't welcomed you. Then the second thing is, even as a Christian, when he is with his quote-unquote gay friends, he feels relief and calm. He feels something different when he's with those friends than he does with other friends we can only presume he means friends who call themselves Christians. And this is why, this is a good example of why I believe 
Thinking and talking about this idea of radical hospitality is so important. Because there are people in this world that you're going to run into and encounter who don't feel like church and Christians are safe places for them. But the Bible calls us to make a difference in that stigma, to push back against it, not by just preaching the gospel, but by how we live our lives around people who think and feel differently than us. And so that's why I want us to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. This is a verse, I mentioned it last week, that we have uh, up on the wall. You may, no, I don't think anybody knew it was there, maybe a couple of people last week, but it's right uh, on the wall as you come into this, this section of the room over here. But it says this, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Let me pray as we think through this verse. Lord, I pray that you illuminate our minds and our hearts to hear what you would have to say, that your spirit would speak to us through your word, and that it would change how we live, how we think, and how we act towards other people, especially those who are far from you in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what I want to do tonight is I want to kind of walk through this verse and really break it down uh, into just a couple words at a time. Because I think as we do that, the full impact of this verse and what God is trying to tell us through it is really going to start to sink in to our hearts, okay? And I'll also say, kind of right off the bat, I'm going to be quoting from a book uh, by the gospel, called The Gospel Comes with a House Key by an author named Rosaria Butterfield. And her context that she is writing from is from, she is a former, uh, almost tenured, well, I think she may have gotten even tenured, professor at Syracuse University, uh, who was an active lesbian, an active activist in the LGBTQ community. And her life changed over time, but radically, as she encountered Christians who opened up their home, opened up their lives, and just invested in her. And so this, she's writing from a, a very good insider perspective uh, into the things that we're going to be talking about tonight. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. It starts off with the word, so. So quick note, when you're studying the Bible, if you ever see a word like so, or therefore, or because of, you know that there's something that you got to know before you read the verse for it to really make sense and to get all that this verse is trying to tell us. So the context of this verse is Paul is writing to a church in Thessalonica whom he uh, initially encountered on his second missionary journey uh, right after he went to Philippi. If you were uh, could go back to verse 2, he talks about how he had suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, but he had boldness to declare the gospel to them. So in Philippi, if you remember, that's when Paul and Silas are imprisoned. This is from Acts chapter 16, imprisoned. And then God sends the earthquake and it breaks all the chains off of them and the other prisoners and the doors fling open. 
And the guard there gets so distraught because he thinks everybody's escaped, and so he's about to die, so he almost kills himself, and then Paul tells him to stop, and his whole, him and his whole family come to know the Lord. So he's in this context of just coming out of prison, just being arrested uh, by the, the people there who were against him and against the gospel message he was preaching. So he's coming off a context of persecution. But here's what he says to them. He says uh, in verse number four that he speaks not just to please man, but to please God. He says he doesn't come with flattery in verse six or the pretext of greed or to seek glory from people. Uh, sorry, in verse, that was verse five. And in verse six, to seek glory from people. He wants to basically for them to know God and Him alone. So he came, he says, with gentleness. And so when we're thinking about how do we approach people, here's how Paul is saying he's approaching these people before they came to know Jesus. It was from a posture of gentleness. And so the first thing we have to think about, if we're going to try to talk to somebody who doesn't know Jesus or who doesn't uh, believe in the things that we're believing or the, the things that we're telling them, we have to check our heart and even ask ourselves, why am I telling this person this good news? Is it because I love them and I want them to be saved? I want them to have a new life? I want them to have something change about them? Or is it because I think that they, you're, are you coming from a posture of they're doing something so bad to me that they need to fix their act because it's hurting me? Is it for them or is it for ourselves? Because that's what Paul is saying. He didn't do anything for himself. Even though he had just been in jail, even though he would have had good reason to try to protect himself as he went to this new town, he said it was nothing for him, not for his glory, not for flattery, which would have implied like trying to gain money from them in some way for bringing the gospel to them, not for greed as well. Nothing was about Paul, nothing was about him being the messenger. It was just about the message and the, the people that he was preaching to, the people that he was coming to know in this new town that he had visited. So Paul wants us right off the bat to remember that when we talk to people, it's not about us and the things that we're doing. It's about God and the things that he wants to do through us to the person that we're talking to. Luke 6 uh, reminds us of this. We talked. We mentioned this verse uh, last week when we talked about the heart. It says, "The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks." So, the first thing we have to do any time we're talking to somebody about the gospel, about Jesus, about anything that we believe, is ask ourselves, "Why am I doing this?" What is my ultimate goal? Is it to get something for me or is it to give something through me? Because God wants to use us that, in that way. And it's with that context that we get verse 8. So let's break this down little by little to see what Paul tells us here. The first thing he says is that he was affectionately desirous of this church in Thessalonica. And that word actually that is translated into affectionately desirous, it's the only time that word is used in Scripture. The only time that we see it, there's no other context to know what it means other than 
other Greek literature. But what we come to believe or, or see from the context of this word is that it's a wholehearted love. There's a Hebrew equivalent um, in the book of Job where Job says that he longs for death. So if you were to take that translation and apply it there, he was affectionately desirous of death. So what does that mean? What is this telling us? He's saying that he desired it so much that he would give anything up to gain it. And that, in Job's context, if you remember the book of Job, he had lost everything. His kids, his uh, servants, his cattle and other animals, everything had been taken away from him through his testing by Satan. And in that, in that time, he says he longs for death. He just wanted nothing more than to just go ahead and die and, and join his children, just be with everything else that had gotten taken away from him. And that's how Paul is describing his love for these people. He wants nothing more than to see them come to Christ. And so it's a, he's going to, to stick with them. It's a long kind of love. It's a love that doesn't give up. It's a love that keeps going. Even if you get hurt or rejected, he's affectionately desirous. He's going to keep running after these people. So as we go through this, I want you to be thinking about people in your life that you know, or people that you've seen or interacted with that you know are far from the Lord. Are those people that you want to keep running after? Are those people that you can just kind of put off into the back burner of your mind and say, you know, maybe one day I'll get around to talking to them, or maybe eventually they'll, they'll, they'll come to church or hear what I have to say. Or are those people that you're going to keep running after. In the book, Rosaria talks about how this family would not let her go, that there was no reason for them to interact with each other, that they ran in different circles, that they lived in different places, but week after week after week, they reached out to her, they texted her, they invited her over for dinner, they called her, checked in on her. They kept praying for her and therefore kept remembering her and kept reaching out to her. So we need to be praying for people regularly who are far from the Lord so that we will remember people regularly who are far from the Lord and reach out to people regularly who are far from the Lord. She writes this in her book, Radical ordinary hospitality is using your Christian life in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. We must be transparent because even more now than in the days of Paul do people have reasons not to trust us. And trust is earned. Trust is not given. Trust is not deserved. Trust is earned by how you daily and regularly talk to people and interact with people and show them how much you love them. Um, she's not here tonight uh, but I've often told Talaria that she is a great example of this. And some of y'all know Talaria or maybe recognize her, but she uh, comes here to church, was baptized uh, last month, and for a year, people just loved her and invited her not to be a stranger, but a neighbor. And as she spent time being a neighbor, just close to people who are believers, 
She became part of the family of God. And that's just a beautiful picture of exactly what kind of uh, affectionate desire we want to have for people. That we would keep inviting them, keep reaching out to them, keep talking to them, so that they would eventually become, what we pray that they would eventually become family of God through how much we love them. And so that's the question. Are you, do you have anybody in your life that you are running after, that you're committing to at least once a week talking to them, just checking in, seeing how they're doing, telling them that you're praying for them, asking them how their journey with spiritual things or with the Lord is going, if they have even uh, started going on that path. Do you have anybody in your life that you're reaching out to? Because we all need to have somebody. A couple years ago, uh, we did this thing as a church called Who's Your One? And we even have used some of the materials last semester just to remind us that this is some, a tool that you can use to help remind you of one person that you know in your life that is far from the Lord that you could not give up on and keep running after. So affectionately desirous of you. That's the first part here. Then it says, we were ready. And that word implies not just ready as in like, all right, I'm ready for my day. I woke up, you know, I'm, at least I'm awake, I'm alive. But ready as in like an enjoyment. Like if you are looking forward to going somewhere or doing something, my wife and her family always went to Disney World. That was their vacation. Did that several times. And she always talks about how much she looks forward to going now if, if we have an opportunity to go with our kids because that was such a big part of her childhood. It's something she's waiting for and longing for and looking forward to. She's ready for that to happen. And we were able to do that last summer, and she's already ready to go back again. She want, That's something she longs for and wants to do and is ready whenever it happens, right? But listen to this. When it says we were ready, he's saying that it wasn't the church when they became Christians that he wanted to spend his time and his energy and his life with. Paul was saying it was the church before they became Christians that he was ready and longing to spend time with. Okay, that, and that's important because we can read a letter to the church and think he's talking about them as Christians, which he is writing the letter to them as a church, as a group of believers, but he's talking about back before they became believers that he wanted to spend that time with them. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we ready? And are we ready to do what? To share, to give up part of something that we own. Well, y'all know I have two sons, and uh, the older one, Liam, likes to keep the younger one out of his room. Because that room is his kingdom, it's his domain. He doesn't want anybody messing up his Legos. He doesn't want anything coming out of order in the way that he wants it. So whenever he's ready to block his brother from going out of the room, he closes the door. You know, we don't have a keep out sign, but if he did, he'd probably hang it on the door. But that closed door is a sign that this is mine, and I don't want you coming to mess this thing up. And listen to this. When Paul is talking about being ready to share with them, he was talking about inviting a group of non-Christians a group who would have had struggles and vices and flaws and idols and messiness in their lives into his life. 
that door was open. There was no keep out sign on Paul's life. He was ready to share with them and to enter into their community. Guys, here's what happens a lot of time in church, in our communities, in our friendships. We can become so close and tight with the people that we spend this time with week after week that it's really hard to keep the door open so that other people can be invited in. We do that with new Christians who come to visit, but it can be hard as well with non-Christians who are trying to check out what's going on, but who don't fit in, who don't look like us, who don't talk like us, who don't act like us. Our temptation in those moments is to put up the wall, to close the door, and to keep us and our friends safe from the messiness that is outside. And we can't live that way. If we're going to be people of the gospel, people who are helping others access God like God has brought His grace into our lives, we have to keep that door open. We have to be willing to share. And what does Paul say that he shares? He says two things, the gospel and our own selves. And so the first thing we have to know and be ready to share is the gospel. And so many of you have been here for, for a while and have probably seen what I'm about to show you. This uh, picture up here is called the three circles. And if you've never been able to explain the gospel, or if I were to go and ask you what is the gospel and you didn't know what to say, this is a tool. It's not the only tool. But it's a good tool to help you know how to explain the gospel. So I want to take a moment to walk through this uh, because it's so important to know the gospel. Right? Paul says that he came to share the gospel. That wasn't the only thing, but it was an important thing. And the first thing we see on here on the top left is God's design. And we've talked about this before. In the middle of God's design, his number one creation was us. And what he wants out of us more than anything is our hearts. So God designed the world, which would be kind of a picture of that circle. And God designed us. He designed us to love him and worship him with our whole hearts. But our hearts turned away from God when we desired the wisdom of the world over the ways of the Lord. And when we left God in our hearts and then in our actions, that's called sin. And sin leads to a new world a world of brokenness, evidence throughout Scripture and throughout history. Everything in this world is broken, starting with Cain and Abel and the flood and the Tower of Babel and all the idols that popped up and that the people of Israel and other nations worshipped and offered children on and all these things that happened, culminating in the ultimate act of brokenness that became the ultimate sign and act of forgiveness, the death of God, the Son of God, Jesus, on the cross. And that's where we get the gospel world. When Jesus came down from heaven, got the down arrow, lived the perfect life, died on the cross as a curse for us, and rose again from the grave, he created a new world that he is the king over. And how do we enter in from the world of brokenness to the world that Jesus is recreating is by repenting of our sin and believing in Jesus. As we turn from our sin and our 
broken world and turn into Jesus and his kingdom and trust in all the things that the Bible says about him, we are now free from our sin and free to recover and pursue God's design, to live a life of good works, to live a life that we are able to draw closer to Jesus or able to pursue him and to pursue his kingdom and to push out brokenness in this world. And so that's the gospel. That's, that's a, a short telling of the gospel. There's obviously so many more things you can say and teach and show people about Jesus and about sin and about God's design. But if you're able to give somebody just a short presentation, that's a good way to do it. But that's not the only thing that Paul seeks to share with this church in Thessalonica. Before they became believers, he says he sought to share his own self. He sought to share his own life. It's translated in other versions. And that word life and self literally means soul. Every part of Paul, everything that he had to offer, he wanted to share with them. It wasn't just his money. It wasn't just sharing food. It wasn't just having a quick conversation. He was sharing anything that he could share with them for them to come to know Jesus. One of the biggest plagues, uh, if you were to look at studies and see any mental health statistic and how it's changed over the past three or four years, you would see that loneliness has risen incredibly over the last uh, several years, especially since 2020, since COVID. And if there's anything that this verse is pushing against, it's the idea that anybody in this world who has any contact with a Christian should ever feel lonely. There is no reason that anybody around us that we know that we have the opportunity to talk to and to interact with should ever feel lonely because God has put us into their paths and into their lives. And if we're willing to live out what, what this verse says and share not just the gospel in a conversation, but our lives regularly as much as we can with them, we're going to push back loneliness and we're actually going to live out Psalm 86.6, which says God sets the lonely in families. God's purpose for those who are lonely, far from Him, far from anyone who cares about them, is to put them in a family. And He's given them, if you're in their life, a family that they can look at and become a part of if you're willing, if we're willing, to invite them in. He tends to use us as living proof that the lonely can enter into a family. Jesus did this in a very clear way in the book of Luke. We see Jesus calling Matthew. So if you want to turn over to Luke chapter 5, you can read this story of Jesus calling Matthew or Levi, as he's called in this book uh, by Luke, to be one of his disciples. So Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17. First we see Jesus doing what Paul was doing, sharing the gospel, teaching a crowd of people. Uh, this is actually the, the account of him healing 
the paralyzed man who was brought through the roof. But he says in verse 17, on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting them who had come from every village, Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So Jesus was teaching, Jesus was healing, Jesus was demonstrating and preaching the gospel. But here's what he does after that. It says in verse 27, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And then he saw him, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Then listen to what happens next. Levi made him a great feast in this house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Now think about this. Tax, being a tax collector would have been one of the most lonely professions that anyone could have in this time period. You were hated by your Jewish brothers and sisters because you were, in their eyes, taking money from them and giving that money to the enemy. And you weren't respected by Romans because you were still a Jew. Even though you were you know, on their side and getting money for them, they still didn't respect you. They still didn't associate with you. So you literally had nobody who would be your friend, aside from maybe some other tax collectors who were scattered around. So imagine this great feast with this large company of lonely people, Jesus there at the center. And what do the the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious folk, do at this? They grumbled and say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If we're going to look like Jesus, we need to live in this same way, where we are able to surround ourselves with at least one person who is feeling the weight of this world on their souls and show them the grace of Jesus by how we live with them, how we talk to them, how we pray for them, how we regularly reach out to them. And that's what radical hospitality is all about. Let me read you one more quote here from Rosario from the book, The Gospel Comes with a Housekeeper. She says, practicing radical, ordinary hospitality is your street cred with your post-Christian neighbors. It allows you to listen, to keep secrets, to be a safe friend, and to speak a word of grace into dark places. Your words can only be as strong as your relationships. God calls us to make sacrifices that hurt so that others can be served and maybe even saved. Listen to this. We are called to die. Nothing less. And that comes straight from John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life, the same word that Paul uses here, for his friends. That's what we're called to do. To lay down our life. To lay down the way we want to spend our time, the way we want to spend our money, the people we might want to hang out with, so that we can enter into a lonely person's world Show them the grace of God by how we interact with them, how we treat them, how we love them in a way that is in no way thinking about ourselves.
But there are a few things I want us to think about and a couple applications that I want us to make. Okay, One of the things that I want to give you a warning of, because you can hear a message like this and you can run straight into the deep end if you feel God calling you towards somebody. But God does not want you to be hurt by others. Matthew 7, 6 Jesus in teaching, uh, is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. My brother, his name's Travis, uh, he's, he's not a believer, um, but he is one of the kindest people uh, that I know. Whenever he was had just moved out of uh, the house, he was 18, 19 years old, kind of trying to do things on his own. He had a couple roommates, and one of them was taking full advantage of Travis. He was uh, not paying rent. He was not buying groceries. He did not have a job. Uh, he was literally like sleeping in his you know, semi kind of walk-in closet, you know, just enough room to get like a sleeping bag on the floor. And Travis was, was doing everything for his friend, or so he called him. Until one day, Travis didn't have anything left. He couldn't afford his rent. Uh, he was getting you know, evicted. And my parents came in and basically sat him down. And we had tried to tell them this over and over, but he, he wouldn't quite listen until uh, it was too late. That at some point, you have to realize that it's okay if somebody is taking advantage of you in that way to stop. And to let the hospitality run to an end because at a certain point it becomes enabling. Now, I say that as a warning and not as a posture. That we shouldn't have a posture of not trying to be hospitable because of the chance that they might take advantage of us. But if we do run into a situation where somebody is trying to take advantage of your hospitality, it is okay to say no. And so I want to give that warning. Um, Another warning, another thing to consider is this. If we're not willing to listen to people and what they believe, they're not going to be willing to listen to us. So take this as an application. Uh, some of us are going to be going to Beach Reach in a couple weeks. All of us are around non-believers at different times in our lives. And if we don't take the time to listen to people when they're in the vans with us at Beach Reach or you're talking to them in class, or you're interacting with them at work or wherever it might be, if you don't take the time to listen, they're not going to take the time to listen to you. So if you're trying to build in radical hospitality into your life, make sure you start by showing them that you care by how you're going to listen to them and take their views seriously. Understanding that just because you believe it's false doesn't mean that it's not something very serious and precious to them. So don't, don't belittle what other people believe. Don't try to push it off to the side. But truly, remember that they're not a blank slate. That they have a worldview that's been shaped over time and by their experience. And that's precious to them. So it should be precious to us, even if we're trying to get them to move away from it. And that's why these relationships take time and effort. And just continuing to chip away and show them that you're going to be with them. No, and even if they reject what you believe the first time. The next thing I want, it, would want you to remember uh, is it's better to be quiet than to be fake. 
And this is something that I've had to walk through uh, in my own life. I, you know, am naturally, and you may believe it or not, I'm naturally an introverted person. Uh, I was not one to ever think I would have a career in talking to people. That would not have ever been my guess when I was growing up. I did not want to speak, uh, hated speech class in college. All those things were terrifying to me. But especially coming to a situation where I had to share something that I did wrong. I can remember, uh, you know, times growing up, multiple, that I let my brothers take the fall for things that I did because I just didn't want to admit that I had done anything wrong. Uh, I, didn't, I, re- <laughs> I remember being in charge of my brothers one time and them just not listening to me. I'm the oldest. I have four younger brothers. Um, three of them were at the house with me and I was supposed to be in charge and you know that, that didn't happen. But they were doing anything they wanted because mom and dad weren't there and I got so angry with them that I kicked a hole in the wall. But yeah, believe it or not, uh, I did. You can ask my mom. Um, but I, I was terrified to say anything, to admit that I had done anything wrong. And even in uh, bigger things than that, it can still be scary to admit that I've done something wrong. But what I've learned over the years is that the more I am willing to be transparent and be honest, not just about the good in life, but about the struggles that I have in life, the more courage I have to stand in front of people and just live life with them, to to talk to them. Getting in a habit of repenting and of being transparent helps you continue to grow in being repentant and transparent and being open and being somebody that people can talk to. And that's been, and I, I, I want to tell you guys this as often as possible, I want to be somebody that you can talk to if you need to talk to, and I want... Everybody in here to have somebody that they know that they can talk to if they need to talk to somebody. But that's not going to happen for us. And it's not going to happen for, for my desire either if I'm afraid to share my own struggles. If I want to help you with yours but never let you help me with mine. And so that's something we must display. We must display repentance. So that would be the third thing here. So if you... Make sure you're not being taken advantage of. Make sure that you're listening to other people and what they value. And make sure you're not trying to fake that you're better than you are. You don't want to be seen as self-righteous. You don't want to be seen as closed-minded. And if you're not transparent, that's most likely how you're going to come across. And so the final thing here to remember is that everything in life, just like we began, uh, it begins with what Jesus has done for us. Everything in life is about what Jesus has done for us. It's about His grace. It's about His mercy. It's about Him being a high priest, like it says in Hebrews 4, that is able to sympathize with our weakness. He has gone through the, the, the being taken advantage of by Judas. He's gone through being lonely when all His disciples deserted Him. He's gone through everything that we deal with in this world. And yet, He gently and humbly wants to be with us as we go through it as well.
He loves us so much, like a newborn being held by a father. He's gentle, he's kind, and he walks with us. And if he gently holds us in that way, how can we do the same thing for others? So if you struggle with this, just remember that this is a, this is a process This is going to take time. It's going to take you thinking about how you can do things in life differently. Uh, same for me. I've been trying to brainstorm ways in my life that I can do this better because I'm not always the best at this. I'm not preaching from an area of expertise. I'm speaking from an area of need in my own life. I need to be able to open up my home, open up my life, open up my time to people who, who are far from the Lord and who, could, who need it, who, who need somebody to intervene. And if God's put them in front of me, that's what He's calling me to do for them. And it's the same for you. God's put somebody in front of you who you can enter into their life and they're going to allow you to enter in because of the way you treat them. And that's an opportunity and an invitation from God to join in. So whether you're at Beach Reach, whether you're in your dorms, for me, one of the things that I want to try to do is just using my uh, time and energy and conversations uh, I've maybe mentioned this before, but one of the things that I feel the Lord calling me to do more is have opportunities and, and use counseling as a ministry. And so just being able to use that uh, and be, have hospitality through that is something the Lord's put on my heart. But whatever the Lord is showing you, just take the time, take the, the effort, take the grace of the Lord that He gives you every day and just keep leaning into that person who He's calling you to intervene and be His hands and feet in their life. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing together. Lord, I pray now that You help us to lean into You, lean into this idea of radical hospitality, where we can be Your hands and Your feet in the difference maker in somebody's life, not because we're just trying to preach to them, but because we're trying to love them and care for them and be there for them and walk with them through the struggles that they may be dealing with. Lord, I pray now that you reveal in all of our hearts somebody, somebody out there who is a child of you, created in your image, who might be our stranger, but who could become our neighbor and who you could use us to enter in, help them enter into the family of God. Lord, I thank you for uh, each person here, and I pray that you let your words sink in to each of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.